Speaking of your Bible, would you open up to Genesis chapter 3? We're going to cover one verse. One verse. Genesis 3.15. The title for our message today is The Hope of Man. Sometime in past eternity, the self-existing, personal, eternal God, who is one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, he determined to have a kingdom over which he would rule as sovereign king. Now, it is, of course, impossible to have a kingdom without subjects, and therefore, because nothing else existed over which he could rule besides himself, he determined to create two major kinds of personal created subjects. He created angelic subjects, and he created human subjects. Now, angels are spirit beings, which means that they do not possess bodies of flesh and bone. They do possess intelligence and the ability to communicate, and they are more powerful than human subjects. Angels were made to dwell with God in where? The heavens. And then they were given access to the earth after it was created. The second kind of personal created subject for God's kingdom was man. And for his domain, God uniquely created this universe, and particularly the earth. Man was to administer over the earth on the behalf of God. And to do this task, of course, he had to be adequately equipped. Because it was important for man to understand his physical world, God directly and personally formed for him a physical body created out of the very dust of this earth. Now, since it was also necessary for man to be able to receive and understand God's directions and God's communications, God created man in his own image and likeness. Man is a personal being who, like the angels, also possesses intelligence and the ability to communicate. So with the creation of the universe, earth, and man... God's work of bringing his kingdom into existence was complete. And as he looked upon all that he had created, what did he say? It is very good, Genesis 1.31. There was, however, one particularly beautiful and intelligent angel whose pride became such that he actually deceived himself into thinking that he could overthrow the sovereign rule of God. This supreme angel... Imagine that he could make himself the king of the universe by establishing a kingdom of his own, which would war against and ultimately defeat and destroy God's kingdom. What was his name? Lucifer, exactly, meaning star of the morning. What Lucifer failed to realize in his distorted pride was that he never could and never would be more than a creature of God, a created being. And as merely a created being, there is no doubt whatsoever about Lucifer's eventual defeat. Now, we know that God could have crushed Lucifer's rebellion the moment that it first arose in his heart, but in God's sovereign plan for history, he chose not to do so. God had desired to have subjects who willingly chose to love, serve, and obey him. And Lucifer, you see, would provide both the angels and mankind with the opportunity to make that choice, to willingly love, serve, and obey God. Now, in order to establish his own kingdom, Lucifer needed to obtain subjects. Because, again, you cannot have a kingdom unless you have subjects. But because he himself is a created being, he lacks the ability to create his own subjects, as God had done. The only way, therefore, for Lucifer to gain subjects was by way of persuasion and deception of other created beings. He would persuade and he would deceive other created beings into joining him in his rebellion against God. Now, since he wanted to replace God's kingdom, this meant that he would need to have both heavenly and earthly subjects. According to the scripture, we learn that one-third of the angelic, the created angelic beings, were persuaded and deceived. We don't know how, but they did determine, they made their choice to join Lucifer in his rebellion against God. They willingly placed themselves under Lucifer's rule, which is why the scripture refers to him as the prince of angels in Matthew 12, 
24 to 26, and also as the ruler of the authority of the heir, Ephesians 2.2. However, two-thirds of the the angels chose to remain faithful to God, and they are referred to as the holy or the elect angels in the scripture. Well, after Lucifer and the angels who followed him were cast out of heaven by God, Lucifer's name was changed to Satan, meaning adversary. And all the fallen angels, one-third of the angels that fell with Lucifer, were called or most commonly referred to as demons or fallen angels. In a very subtle way, which of course was permitted by God, Satan then entered into man's garden home, in the land of Eden, and he succeeded in deceiving the wife who had been created for Adam, the first man. Tempted by Satan, she chose to disobey God's one restriction concerning the eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then, in spite of God's very serious warning, Adam, the first man, although not deceived, remember we learned he was not deceived, he also of his own free choice, willingly decided to disobey his creator. Of course, because God is holy and he is just, there were some tragic consequences which resulted from man's disobedience. And I believe we looked at these right before we broke for our resurrection break. Adam and Eve instantly, first of all, died spiritually. Immediately, they no longer had the intimate fellowship and relationship with God that they had had prior to the fall. Secondly, they began to die physically. Sin brought about a process of decay which began in both their own bodies, you know, subjecting them to all kinds of diseases, deformities, and eventually to death, and also in all of nature, including the animal kingdom. Furthermore, man lost some of his ability to exercise dominion over this earth. The earth would no longer just naturally and orderly produce an abundance of food for man's needs. It would no longer be under control, but it would rather produce all manner of thorns and thistles and weeds and other agriculturally related problems, which would cause man to have to labor with sweat and sorrow to feed his family. Also, because of his rebellion against God, man was immediately transferred from membership in the kingdom of God to membership in the kingdom of Satan. That's his spiritual death, really. Now, because human beings and animals as well reproduce after their own kind, every human being since Adam and Eve, except, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, who did not have a human father, but every other human being is born with the Adamic sin nature because we reproduce after our own kind. In addition to being born with the sin nature, every human being, because he is a sinner, also chooses himself to sin, to disobey God. The scripture tells us very clearly, for all have sinned. And come short of the glory of God. Unless a person accepts God's one way of salvation, which of course is through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, he will live out, he or she will live out their lives deceived by Satan into believing that error is truth and truth is error. And he will therefore be on the very same road to destruction, to ultimate destruction that Satan and the fallen angels are on. Now, so then, Satan has had been successful in transferring many of God's angelic subjects and all of God's human subjects into his domain. In the process, he had also succeeded in making the earth a province of his own kingdom. So, from all outward appearances, you know, when we finished our study last last time. From all outward appearances, it looked as though Satan had been very successful in his challenge of God's sovereign rule. There were two opposing kingdoms in existence. And now, if God was to remain absolute sovereign, he must crush Satan and his rebellious kingdom. So the stage was set 
for a tremendous conflict, a conflict which is known as the conflict of the ages. This is a conflict which is fought both in the heavenlies, not in the third heaven, but in the first and second heavens, and also here on earth. It is this conflict which actually provides us with the key to unlocking the mystery of the ultimate purpose for history, for human history. Both God and his enemy Satan each have their own plan and purpose for history. However, since God is God and Satan is merely a created being, it is God's purpose for history which is the ultimate one. It's the one which is going to succeed in spite of whatever Satan's purpose is. What is, let's look at Satan's purpose first. What is Satan's purpose for history? Well, it is, as we've already indicated, it is to make himself the only sovereign king or god of the universe. He knows that his current kingdom is not an everlasting kingdom unless he can succeed in crushing God and his kingdom, which is precisely what he has been attempting to do ever since that first proud, rebellious thought arose in his mind. On the other hand, God's purpose for history is to demonstrate his absolute sovereignty by totally and permanently crushing Satan and his entire kingdom, you know, removing all of the fallen angels and all ungodly men permanently, and then restoring his theocratic kingdom, his theocratic rule in the provinces of the universe, which have been temporarily usurped by Satan and his forces. The ultimate purpose, then, for history is the demonstration of God's absolute sovereignty. In order to demonstrate his sovereignty during the course of history, God must restore this present earth to its original condition. It's the condition that it enjoyed before the fall of man. He must also abolish all physical diseases and deformities and natural hazards and accidents, violence, and, of course, death by resurrecting the bodies of those who have already died. He must cause man to govern this present earth in the manner in which God had originally intended for man to govern the earth. He must also perfect the environment and restore the animal kingdom to its original state of being tame and non-carnivorous just eating vegetation again. He must also transfer, and this is one of the most important things, he must transfer human beings from membership in the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his glorious light by causing them to experience a new spiritual birth. And he must dethrone Satan over this world and restore the earth as a province of his own kingdom. Now, the reversal of all these consequences of man's sin is what is known as God's program of redemption. This is his entire redemption program. It's very interesting to notice that God wasted absolutely no time at all in initiating this program for redemption. No sooner had Adam fallen into sin making it, of course, possible for Satan to usurp the earth for his own kingdom, then God immediately intervened with a fantastic prophetic judgment on Satan. And this is what we find in Genesis 3.15. Now, prior to hearing this divine curse upon himself, Satan would probably have been feeling very victorious, don't you imagine? He would have been thinking that he had just won the allegiance of the first man and woman, and therefore of all their future offspring. And they would therefore be his allies, along with his host of all the fallen angels, in his effort to dethrone God. He had just won over Adam and Eve. And the woman in particular, who was to bear the future children of the world, would provide him, you see, with his much-needed army, his human army, that would join 
his angelic army in his rebellion against God. And she had already demonstrated her control over man, hadn't she, when she had so easily gotten man, Adam, to eat of the forbidden fruit. So with the potential of human reproduction under his control, Satan may very well have been imagining a great host of obedient human subjects or servants which, who would be willing to do his very bidding in his war against God. I mean, after all, the fallen angels were willing to do his bidding. Now, why wouldn't mankind be willing to also uh, be his servants? However, if it is true that Satan had been thinking thoughts like this, this, then he once again succeeded in only deceiving himself. The woman whom he had so easily deceived into sin would not become his willing ally. When God opened his mouth in judgment against Satan, the first thing he said is, I will look at the verse, 315. He says, and I will put what? Enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. The woman was not going to be Satan's ally. So Satan didn't have very long to rejoice in what he thought was a great victory. The woman wasn't going to be his ally. She was going to be his enemy. And her godly offspring were not going to be his allies. They, too, were going to be his enemies. And furthermore, in God's judgment upon the woman for her sin, Satan learned that she would not rule over her husband. Remember, we learned this in the judgment upon Eve last time. She wasn't going to rule over her husband. In addition to learning that his victory over the human race would not be as easy as he thought, Satan then also learned from God's prophetic judgment in this verse that he would ultimately be completely destroyed and uh, defeated. Because in this verse he heard God say that his head would be bruised by the woman's seed. And a blow to the head speaks symbolically of a fatal blow. Now, this great prophetic judgment of Genesis 3.15, which is known as the Proto-Evangelium, meaning the first gospel, is a very, very important verse because it contains God's promise, his first promise, of the ultimate coming and victory of the Redeemer, the one who would fulfill God's complete redemptive plan for history. This single verse here contains the beginning and the germ of all the rest of biblical prophecy. And therefore, I determined that it was worth a complete lesson just to look at this one verse. And we're going to break the verse into three um, subtopics. You can remember these even without an overhead. We're going to look at two enemies, two seeds, and two bruisings. Two enemies, two seeds, and two bruisings. Okay, so let's begin by looking at the first part of the verse, two enemies, where God says, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman. The first truth that God revealed in this prophetic judgment on Satan was that there was going to be enmity between himself, Satan, and the woman throughout history. Now, the Hebrew word for enmity is ebha, which refers to hatred or antagonism and opposition, hostility. In Scripture, this word is always, always used to speak of antagonism or hatred between people, you know, person against a person. It is never used to speak of hatred between a person and an animal. Therefore, we know that God was no longer speaking to the serpent creature. Remember in verse 14, his judgment had been upon the serpent. Well, he's no longer talking, it sounds like if you just read it through, like he was just continuing to speak to the serpent. But we know that he wasn't. He was speaking to the one who had used the serpent. And that one, of course, was Satan. And we also find out here in this phrase of this um, verse that it is God himself who put the enmity between Satan and the woman. Doesn't it say, and I will put? That's God speaking. God puts his the enmity between them. And so therefore we learn that it is God who stirs up opposition to evil. 
We must understand that although enmity, antagonism, hostility, hatred, whatever word you want to use, is generally sinful, yet enmity against evil, enmity against Satan, is a virtue. It is not evil. Believers are to be antagonistic and at enmity with evil and with sin. We are always to be at enmity with sin, and we are always to stand in opposition to all that is, is, that is wicked. The Lord Jesus stood in opposition to evil, didn't he? We are to do likewise. So the woman Eve would not, as Satan had thought, she would not become his great ally. She would become his enemy. She would hate Satan for his wicked deception. She would hate him for all the ruin and destruction that he had caused not only to herself and her life, but to the life of her husband through her and the life of her children to come. Now the woman here, we have to understand that the woman not only speaks of Eve, although directly it does speak of Eve, but prophetically the term, the woman, also speaks of Israel. For she is the woman from which the promised seed, the Redeemer, would come. And as we well know, once Satan discovered that it would be through Israel that the Messiah would come, that nation and her people have become the great object of his malicious attacks and enmity all through history, ever since he first learned it would be through her, Israel. Also then, to be included in this prophecy regarding the woman who would actually give birth to the Redeemer, we have to include Mary, who was the mother of Jesus. So directly the woman speaks of Eve, but prophetically she speaks of Israel and also Mary. But we're going to talk more about God's prophecy concerning the enmity between Satan and the woman as we next consider the enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So let's look at that. I'll read the whole verse again. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and here's the next phrase we're going to look at, where it's uh, two seeds, and between thy seed and her seed. All right, we've looked at two enemies, now we're going to talk about two seeds. The first question that we need to consider regarding the enmity which God was going to put between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent is who or what is meant by the word seed. Well, obviously, this word speaks of biological descendants, but it's, that's not possible in either one of these cases. Satan is an angel, and remember what I said at the beginning, angels are spirit beings. They don't possess the ability to reproduce. So, you know, Satan cannot have seed, and women do not biologically produce seed do they? Only man, of all God's created subjects, only man was created to physically produce seed. So, and here we have talk about seed of Satan and the seed of woman. So obviously something other than physical descendants is meant here. Spiritual offspring must be what is referred to. The seed of Satan also cannot refer to the demons. You know that, don't you? Can't refer to the demons who serve under him because he did not bear them as his seed. They were created by God at the very same time that he was created. And they're not increasing in their numbers. The angels, you know, whatever number God originally made, that's the number that exists today. So who then are the children or the descendants, the seed of the devil. Well, in fact, the scripture tells us who they are. They are those human beings who are the ungodly men and women of the earth, those who are the enemies of God. It tells us in 1 John 3, 8, he that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. Also, the Lord Jesus said to the religious rulers of Israel, he said, ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. Now, the seed of the woman then refers 
in contrast to the ungodly human enemies of God, the seed of the woman would refer to those who are brought into the family of God through their faith. They are children of God the Father. So the prophecy here, first of all, forecasts the age-long conflict between the children of God and the, I should say, the spiritual children of God and the spiritual children of the evil one, Satan. And this conflict began immediately with the very first two children who were born to Adam and Eve. This is what we'll look at, Lord willing, when we come back in the fall. The very first thing we'll look at is uh, the conflict between Cain and Abel. Cain, a spiritual child of who? Satan. He was a spiritual child of Satan. He was at enmity with Abel who was of the godly seed. He was the godly seed of the woman because he was a true child of God. So right away we have a battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The Lord God was predicting the fact that human history was going to be a great struggle between good and evil. He was letting Satan know that no matter how much Satan might try to destroy godliness here on earth, God himself was always, always going to make sure that there was some godly people still remaining, that, that he would always have his remnant. There would always be the godly seed of the woman. Satan and his followers would therefore never, ever be free from the enmity of the godly, those true followers of the Lord, no matter how. And sometimes it got really down to almost a few, like in, yeah, down to Noah. However, there is another meaning to the two seeds than what we have already discussed. There's also one primary seed of the serpent, Satan, as there is also one primary seed of the woman. Now, the ultimate seed of Satan, who can guess, would be right, exactly, the Antichrist, who is the man of sin and the son of perdition. You know, see, he will imitate, the Antichrist will imitate the hypostatic union of the two natures of the Lord, of the Lord Jesus, because he will be both the man of sin and he will be the son of perdition, which means the son of Satan. He will actually be both man and Satan in one person, just as Jesus Christ was both 100% man and 100% God in one person. The Antichrist will be both man and Satan because he will be a man who will be possessed by Satan. And, of course, we know that the ultimate seed of the woman is who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the two most important or interesting words, I don't know if they're the most important. Yeah, maybe they are. But the most interesting two words in the Proto-Evangelium, this uh, Genesis 3.15 here, are the words her seed. This combination of words, her seed, is found nowhere else in all the Word of God, only here. We read in the Bible over 100 times we read of the seed and we read of seeds, but we never again read of her seed. In the other cases, it is always, if you look every one of those times up, it's always, it always refers to the seed of man. But here we specifically have her seed. The seed of the woman is a totally unique concept, which can only be interpreted as a prediction of a supernatural conception. It has to speak also, we know, it has to speak of the birth of a male, a man. Because if you keep looking at Genesis 3.15, you'll find out that it refers to him when it says his heel. So we know that this seed of the woman is going to be a male because his heel. And it also has to speak of a virgin birth because if this one who would bruise, I know we haven't gotten there yet, but 
the last part talks about this one will bruise the head of the serpent. If he was not to be born of a virgin, then he would not have been referred to, he would have been referred to as his seed. You see? If he wasn't, if he was just going to be born the natural way, it would have said his seed and not her seed. So it is clearly implied here that the Redeemer would one day be supernaturally conceived and born of a virgin. Now this promised seed would not be born then with the inherited Adamic sin nature. But he still would be a man because he would have been born of a woman. And neither, because he was a virgin birth, neither would he have been born under Satan's dominion as all other men. And therefore, he would be able to engage Satan in mortal combat, which we are told about in the last section of verse 15, where we talked about the combat, the bruising, the two bruisings. Now, there are, of course, other scripture passages which came along with the passing of time that gave additional predictions about a virgin birth, you know, the virgin birth of the coming Redeemer. We have, for example, Isaiah 7:14, which you all know. It says, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name what? Emmanuel, God with us. And then uh, we have a very interesting prophecy, which is oftentimes overlooked in Jeremiah 31:22, where it says, The Lord hath created a new thing, a new thing, a woman shall compass a man. Very important verse. It speaks of a virgin birth. And then we also, of course, have the fulfillment of these verses when Mary conceived a man-child by the Holy Spirit. It says in Luke chapter 1, And behold, this is the angel speaking to Mary, And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son. And then Mary said unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? Had never had a relationship with a man. And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee. And then we also have Galatians 4.4, 4, which tells us that God sent forth his son made of a woman. Right, not made of a man. If the Lord Jesus had been born according to the laws of natural reproduction, the way we, you know, reproduce, having a human father in addition to a human mother, then he, like all of us, would have had to have cried out, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. But he was not born like we are born or like any other man had ever been born. And therefore, Christ was born holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, which is what it tells us in uh, Hebrews 7.26. Because he was not conceived of a human father. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. His substance was therefore pure and without original sin, which was a vitally important fact for him to be able to save sinners. I know there are many in Christendom who say that the virgin birth is not a vital doctrine for the Christian faith, but I strongly oppose that, absolutely oppose that view as liberals and neo-orthodoxism or whatever you would refer to it as would tell us. The virgin birth is vital. Vital, vitally important because he had to be sinless so that he could save us from our sin. If he was a sinner, he would, his death would have been of no avail. Now, speaking of the redemptive saving work of the coming seed of the woman, that brings us then to the last phrase of uh, verse 15, the phrase which predicts two very important bruisings. So let's look at those. And again, I'm going to read the whole verse. God says to Satan, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman... That's the two enemies. And between thy seed and her seed, the two seeds. And now we have the two bruisings. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shall bruise his heel. In the double bruising here of this important verse, we learn that the woman's seed, this virgin-born redeemer, this coming redeemer, would bruise 
the serpent's head. Whose head? Satan's head. While the serpent would bruise the heel of the woman's seed. Now, if there is any doubt regarding the identity of the one who has come, from our perspective, he's already come, as fulfillment of this prophecy, as the miraculously born seed of the woman. If there's any doubt at all that this is Jesus Christ, it's very, it's very clearly um, given to us in Galatians 3.16. If you want to look that up sometime, Galatians 3.16 tells us that the seed here is definitely Christ, so there's no doubt about it. Genesis 3.15 is the first promise of the coming of the Savior in all the Bible. And that's why it's called the Proto-Evangelium, or the first gospel, the first promise of the coming Savior. And it's an unconditional promise. There are no conditions placed on this. He is going to come. God said it. He's going to come. It's not based on anything that man has to do. This promised Redeemer is going to come. It's an unconditional promise, and it is known as the Adamic Covenant. The Adamic Covenant. It is God's unconditional to, uh, promise to Adam and to all mankind that he would send a Savior to deliver him from Satan and from sin and from death. The virgin-born descendant of the woman would bruise, and in Hebrew it, it speaks of crush. He would crush the head of the serpent, Satan. Now how would he do this? Well, he would do it. I have more detail in your notes, which I'm going to skip over. But he would essentially, he would do it by his sinless life, never giving in to temptation. He would do it by his death. He would die on behalf of mankind's sin and shed his perfectly sinless uh, blood. He would do it by his actual burial and then his resurrection three days later. That is how he would crush the head of the serpent. It tells us again, I'll read 1 John 3, 8. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. What were the works of the devil? Well, he brought sin and death into this world. So God was telling Satan that eventually a man born supernaturally of a virgin would deliver a devastating blow to him. In fact, a crushing of his head, which speaks of a, a fatal blow. He would be done in. So this was God's very early way, very early way of promising Adam and Eve, and of course all the future readers of his word, that a redeemer would be born into the world to do the work necessary to crush Satan's kingdom and all of his evil work. Now in order for God to reverse the consequences of man's sin, it meant getting rid of human sin. And we know that elsewhere in the Bible it is revealed to us that the only adequate payment, the only payment for um, the penalty of sin that could just satisfy divine justice and remove man's sin would be death. Death is the only adequate payment for sin. The bruising, therefore, of the woman's seed you know, the bruising of his heel is a prediction of the suffering and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was wounded for our transgressions and bruised, right, for our iniquities. So the bruising of his heel speaks of his suffering and death on our behalf. However, do you think that a bruised heel is a fatal blow? No, it's nothing like bruising and crushing someone's head. It's not a fatal blow. And Christ demonstrated this on the third day. When up from the grave, he arose. So, and that's, of course, what we just celebrated Sunday, isn't it? His resurrection from the dead. Well, since the coming and the work of the Redeemer was the key to God's strategy, uh, as Satan learned here from God's first gospel prediction of Genesis 3.15, the key now to Satan's strategy became the prevention. I mean, if you were Satan, what would you do? Well, you just heard about this one who's coming to crush your head and defeat you totally. So now the key to his strategy would be to prevent this one from ever coming. 
in the first place and also to prevent his redemption, his redemptive work. Well, if you prevent him from coming, he obviously can't complete his redemptive work. And added to this strategy was then Satan's war against the holy angels and all redeemed human subjects of God's kingdom, all those who would place their faith and their trust in this redeemer. You know, whether looking forward to his coming as it was before the cross or looking back on his coming as we do on our side of the cross. So this would be Satan's strategy. When Satan first heard God's prophecy concerning a coming redeemer, he quickly realized, you see, that it would be fatal to him and to his cause, his purpose for history, if this one came. So his primary goal throughout the Old Testament became the prevention of the Redeemer's coming, the Messiah's coming. In other words, he continuously, continuously, nonstop, attempted to destroy the seed of the woman. However, since God never said which woman would bear the seed, Satan was kind of left in the dark, guessing. At the very beginning, Satan tried to destroy the seed of the woman. And as we said, he began, began with who? Cain and Abel, the very first two children of Eve. It became very obvious to Satan that one son was godly in his attitude and obedient, you know, and loved God, while the other was ungodly. And therefore it occurred to Satan that it would most likely be through the line of godly Abel that this Messiah, this Redeemer, would come. So it became important for Satan to try to eliminate Abel. And since Cain was already controlled by a rebellious attitude against God, it didn't take very much to prompt him to kill his godly brother, Abel. 1 John 3:10 to 12 tells us that it was indeed Satan who was involved in Cain's murdering of Abel. And this is why the Lord Jesus referred to Satan as a murderer from what? From the beginning. I mean, that was the first murder that ever occurred when Cain killed his brother. Fortunately, however, God counteracted the murder of Abel by giving Eve another godly son. And what was his name? Seth, which means substitute. He was a substitute for Abel. And it was through the line of Seth, as we learn from the genealogy of Christ, which is given to us in Luke 3, 38, that the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, did come through the line of Seth. So Satan realized that for every godly son he might destroy, God would raise up another. He would always have a substitute. Therefore, Satan changed his tactic. He decided that he would work at perverting the entire human race, including Seth descendants. He would destroy them with apostasy, and he began by developing an ungodly line through Cain. The descendants of Cain began to build an advanced civilization, which was totally godless in its outlook, and it was characterized by polygamy and by violence. Eventually, even Seth's descendants became infected until the human race became so perverted that it literally filled the earth with violence and corruption. The Bible tells us that God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continuously. Satan was pretty successful. So this grieved God so much that he determined that he would destroy man from the face of the earth. But, as always, God counteracted Satan's wicked scheme by preserving one righteous godly man. Remember, he would always have a remnant, and therefore, uh, and this man happened to be a descendant of Seth, the godly son of Eve. And you know his name was Noah. And he, along with his family, was enough to carry on the godly line of Seth through which the Redeemer would come. God, of course, had to destroy the earth, um, not only for the purpose of judgment, but also for the purpose of ending the perversion before even Noah's descendants were infected. And as we know, of course, God instructed Noah 
as to how he and his family and all representatives of the animal kingdom might be preserved from the judgment of the flood, a worldwide flood. And that way, of course, was by building an ark, an ark of safety, which, of course, speaks it's a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. So with the flood, God gave the human race an opportunity for a new beginning with him. At the same time, he also promised to never again destroy all flesh with the flood. And what do we have as a sign of that promise? Right, the rainbow. Satan determined then to use that special divine promise of God, you know, they would never destroy the whole all human flesh again. Um, he, he was going to use that divine promise to his advantage, and he set about then to pervert the human race once again. It was to Satan's advantage to keep mankind close together in one area so as to, you know, it would be easier then for him to spread his apostasy. And his plan began to work as the many descendants of Noah's um, sons, his three sons, united together, didn't take them too long to do this, unite together in a building project of the Tower of Babel, which was the work of humanism, man trying to uh, himself attain godhood. And God again had to counteract this move of Satan toward apostasy by causing the people of earth to suddenly speak different languages. This not only instantly halted their building project, but it also resulted in a scattering of humanity as the various language groups went off in different directions and built nations on the basis of their common languages. So you see he counteracts Satan, wanted to put everybody together because it was a whole lot easier to corrupt them when they're all together and God scattered them across the face of the earth. Well, the scattering of Noah's descendants then did slow down the speed of apostasy, but it didn't stop it altogether. Satan was very determined because, I mean, this the coming redeemer would mean his end. And so through time he was able again to persuade men to suppress the truth about God. Men began to teach each succeeding generation less and less about God. And eventually men were inventing several idolatrous religions as substitutes for the worship of the true God. Because of this, man again began to generate progressively into moral perversion. Nation after nation after nation became corrupted until God revealed that he intended to bring into existence a new nation. I mean, all the other nations were perverted and apostate, so he was going to create a new nation. This nation would play a key role in his warfare against the kingdom of Satan. And the name of this new nation would become Israel. The new revelation about Israel came from God, again, in the form of a covenant. This covenant was made with a man named Abraham, right, who was a member of the line of Adam through Seth and Noah and Shem, one of Noah's godly sons. Once again, Although almost the entire earth was sick with sin, God had a man who was willing to obey him, you know, step out in faith in spite of massive peer pressure against doing so. And Abraham moved to the land of Canaan. God promised Abraham that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. Why? Because the Redeemer, the one, the seed of the woman, the one who would crush Satan's head, would come through Abraham. This was way, God's way of promising him, you know, that, that the, the one who would crush Satan's head would be of his seed. Well, after several generations, Abraham's descendants had to migrate to Egypt, where they lived and they prospered and they multiplied greatly. I mean, just rapidly, the Jewish people began to really multiply over in Egypt. Seeing this new group of God's special people, his, uh, I mean, now Satan knew that, it was, that Israel was the woman through whom the Redeemer would come, all right? He was listening in on things, and so he now knew. And seeing 
these people multiply so swiftly put him on alert. And he became, of course, the vicious enemy of God's chosen people. And he realized that if he was going to defeat the kingdom of God, he must destroy Israel. So, you know, she's his new enemy, Israel. He's focusing in on her, ignoring all the other nations and focusing in on Israel. So from Egypt forward, history has become, for the nation of Israel, one satanically motivated anti-Semitic attack after another. And all you have to do is look at history and realize that that is very true. Satan's very first attempt to annihilate Israel came when he used the stubborn will of Pharaoh pharaoh of egypt and god of course counteracted this satanic move by raising up a deliverer named moses whom he had divinely spared from death as a young infant when satan had used another pharaoh to have all the male jewish infants killed you know that was his attack the first attack on israel to get all the males killed so that they couldn't keep multiplying Well, as the Bible tells us, Moses eventually led the people of Israel to the promised land, although he himself was not allowed to enter into the land. But he certainly didn't lead them there without a whole lot of satanic opposition during 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Well, the entire history then of the Old Testament becomes one attack of Satan after another, always counteracted by God to preserve Israel and the godly line through which the Redeemer, the seed of the woman, would come. When Joshua, who replaced Moses, he actually did get to go into the promised land. He led the, actually physically led the people in. When he died, there was no outstanding godly man to take his place, and Satan saw his opportunity to press on with his attack. As a result, there followed 350 years of Jewish history which was characterized by apostasy and anarchy until the book of Judges ends with these very sad words, that every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Judges 21-25. Well, to finally put an end to this, God raised up a strong leader for the whole nation, and who knows what his name was? Joan? Samuel. Yes, you should have known that. Her son is named Samuel. He raised up a godly man named Samuel. He was able to pull the whole nation back together and to direct the people to repent of their apostasy and to put away all their false gods and to return to the true God. But following Samuel, there again was no one to replace him, no one strong, godly individual. And Israel, you know, Israel had been looking around at all her neighbors, her Gentile neighbors, and she decided that she wanted to be like the Gentile nations and have a monarchy with a human king instead of a theocracy with God as king. You know, we don't want to be different. Peer pressure again, right? And so God let her have what she wanted. And who did she choose as her first king? Saul. She chose Saul, right? God God had David, but she chose Saul because she looked at the outward man, not at the inward man. And he was tall and good-looking, and so she chose Saul. You see, with a central government under a human king, it would be far easier for Satan to pervert the entire nation. Because if the king and the leadership would go corrupt and apostate, then the nation would follow suit, right? That's the danger of our government. And this is exactly what took place. Eventually, uh, you know, eventually Israel... It became very apostate. Eventually, it was divided into two kingdoms. There was the southern, well, there was the northern kingdom, which consisted of ten of the tribes of Israel, and it was called, actually, Israel. And then there was the southern kingdom, which consisted of the two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, and it was called Judah. So you have Israel split in half, Israel on the top and Judah on the bottom. The northern kingdom in its history had a total of 19 kings. 
And every single one of them, without exception, was apostate in both his character and in his actions. They were all ungodly men, every one of the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel. And so finally, God had had enough. I mean, he's long-suffering, but there reaches a point. He finally had enough, and he raised up Assyria to carry um, the northern kingdom off into captivity. That was 734 B.C. Well, the southern kingdom of the two tribes of Benjamin and Judah, it took a little bit longer to go apostate, but eventually she did also. Out of 19 kings and one queen... How many of them do you think were godly? Seven, which is, I mean, it's certainly a lot better than the northern kingdom. They had seven godly out of 20. During the time of the kings, God had made it known that the Redeemer, you know, we're still going through the line now, down to the Redeemer, that the Redeemer was going to come through the line of King David, the godly king who replaced Saul. So then, as you can imagine, Satan's attack was going to be directed on the royal line of King David. And he did, he was very successful in leading many of David's offspring, many of his sons, into sin and into early deaths. However, God always kept at least one son of David alive. One of Satan's greatest instruments of attack that he used against the godly line. There were many, but one of his greatest was a woman named Athaliah. She was the daughter of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, so you know she didn't have very good parents. Athaliah married into the royal house of Judah. Now, when her husband, who was king, and when her son, who was King Ahaziah, when they both died... She seized the throne, and she made herself queen. Remember I said the southern kingdom had 19 kings and one queen? She was that one queen, Queen Queen Athaliah. And she's that awful queen who, as soon as she seized the throne, she um, ordered the extermination of every single royal person who descended from the line of David, King David. This would include all her children, and her grandchildren had them all killed, every single one of them. And this would have been the end of, end of the um, godly line. Then the Redeemer could, would not have been able to come, except, of course, you know what God did. He counteracted, he knew this was coming, and he counteracted this attack from Satan by making sure that one son was kept hidden by the high priest and his wife in the temple. They kept him hidden there for six years, and then they finally brought him out. His name was Joash, King Joash. He was of the godly line of David. I mean, God preserved the coming of the Redeemer by just one baby, one infant baby. And when it was time, they brought him out, and they crowned him, and Athaliah was seized, and she was slain. So the godly line for the Messiah was preserved. Well, when the southern kingdom of Judah eventually went apostate, God was forced to chasten her by raising up a new foreign power called Babylon under the rule of King Nebuchadnezzar. And so Israel, or I should say Judah, was carried off into captivity over in Babylon. And although most of the nation over there compromised with the luxuries and the Babylonian lifestyle. I mean, it was very worldly in Babylon, and most of the Jewish people loved it, and they adopted that. Yet God, of course, again, always maintained his godly remnant with such men as Daniel and Ezekiel. And what about those three Hebrew boys in the fiery furnace? Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, better known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then Satan attempted, during both the Babylonian and the Medo-Persian empires, to destroy all the Jewish people by using such men as King Nebuchadnezzar and another man named Haman. You've all heard of him. But in both of these cases, God intervened to preserve his chosen people. Even when a small remnant of Jews, under the leadership of Nehemiah and Ezra, 
returned to their land. You know, now they're free from Babylon to go back to the land, and not many wanted to leave. It was just a small remnant that actually wanted to leave Babylon. They liked the luxuries of Babylon. But when a remnant went back, Satan continued his attacks against Israel. And she was eventually conquered and suppressed by the Medo-Persians. And it was during that empire that Haman tried to um, um, get King Ahasuerus, you know, to sign an edict to have all the Jews killed. And that's when who stepped in? Queen Esther and uh, saved the day for the Jewish people. So after Babylon, she was um, suppressed by the Medo-Persians and then, of course, by the Greeks. And she suffered some terrible times under the Greeks, such as under Antiochus Epiphanes. And then eventually the Romans came into power. And eventually Rome appointed a man by the name of Herod the Great to be king of Judea. And his reign began in 37 B.C. What are we getting close to? The birth of Christ. So although Satan repeatedly tried to either destroy Israel or to make her totally apostate throughout the whole Old Testament times, God continually intervened to preserve a faithful remnant of his people. And then finally, finally, through a young, godly, virgin woman from the royal line of David, King David, the Redeemer was born. An angel announced to her that her son was to be named Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. He was the son of the Most High God. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was the heir also through his stepfather, not his human biological father, but his stepfather. He was the heir um, to the throne of David. He not only came from the bloodline of David through his mother, but he came, he, he inherited the throne line of David through his father Joseph, his stepfather. And he was also, of course, the one who would give that fatal crushing blow to God's enemy, Satan. This would be the one who would restore the earth and humanity to its original condition. Of course, with the coming of the one who Satan had for centuries been attempting to prevent from ever getting here, what do you think Satan did? He stepped up his attack. I mean, he really accelerated it. This guy was on the scene now, the one who was going to crush his head. So, since his enemy was a helpless baby initially, Satan led King Herod, not the great, but one of the great's sons, uh, another King Herod, to do what? To slay all the male babies born in Bethlehem. Of course, this was just satanically led attack to kill the promised seed of the woman. But again, God, who knows the end from the beginning, he intervened by warning Joseph to flee to Egypt. And then, of course, we know as the Lord's life went on, his earthly life, uh, Satan tempted him to cast himself down from the pinnacle of the temple and to thereby secure the loyalty and the worship of all the people by this spectacular sign instead of by the cross. And, of course, Satan tempted him with other sins as well, but he never succumbed. He never gave in to sin because he is impeccable. The Lord Jesus is God and he cannot sin. He chose God's way instead of Satan's way. And we know that Satan also inspired at one point in time the citizens of Nazareth, the Lord's own hometown, to actually try to cast him off the cliff of a hill and uh, to put him to death. But of course, the Lord escaped. And then Satan was always behind the evil hatred of the religious rulers of Israel. And through them, didn't he attempt over and over again to kill Jesus prematurely? But it wasn't his time, so the Lord always would escape time and time again. And the evil one also tempted the Lord through the people, the Jewish people, to accept a crown and avoid the cross. 
And in all these situations and many others, those of us that went through the life of Christ, we know how many times Satan would attack. The battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman went on and on. For us, however, the good news of Genesis 3.15 has now already occurred, hasn't it? Although Christ was bruised at the cross, it was not a fatal blow. Although Satan did finally lead the world to kill the Messiah and seal him firmly in a tomb, yet God had accepted Christ's sinless atonement for mankind's sin, and he raised him from the dead on that third day. Satan's head was crushed. The war was won. It was won when the Lord Jesus completed the work that he had come to accomplish. And when on that cross, he said, it is finished. And then he died. He gave up his own ghost. He died. And then three days later, rose from the dead. He proved forever that he is sovereign God and that no matter what Satan may attempt to do, as he even yet attacks God's people. I mean, he can't attack Christ anymore because he's risen and seated at the right hand of God the Father. So now what does he do? He's still attacking the godly descendants of the woman, and he's still attacking the woman Israel. But whatever he might do, even during the tribulation period, ultimate victory is Christ because the war has already been won. It was won at the cross. All that awaits... The completion of history is for Christ to return and to take back that which is already rightfully his, not only by way of creation, but now by way of redemption. And all he needs to do is come back, take what is his, and put Satan and all of his rebellious subjects, whether angelic or human, away permanently. And that's what you and I are waiting for, is that trumpet and the Lord's return. Let's pray. Father in heaven, the good news we know is that we do not really have to wait until the return of Christ in order to experience the reality of his kingdom. We can become, and many of us, I hope most of us, all of us, are already citizens of that kingdom today by simply trusting in the promised Redeemer, the seed of the woman who is and can only be Jesus Christ, the only one who has come from the godly line all the way back to Adam, the only one who has already come and bruised Satan's head. To experience the new spiritual birth, we nearly need to just confess him as our Lord and Savior and know that his death was on our behalf and so that we could be free from having to pay the penalty for our own sins ourselves, which of course would mean eternal separation from God forever. And how we do thank you, Father, that not only was his death on our behalf, but that his resurrection was also on our behalf. And because he lives, we can live also. How we praise you and thank you for these wonderful truths. How we thank you for the word of God and for the, the truth that it contains and how it does tell us that one day um, we will be with you in eternity if we have accepted you in faith. We thank you for the Bible. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for just being a perfect God who has such a perfect plan for human history and that ultimately you are the victor. And so I would pray if anyone here is not sure that they're on the winning side, that they would take care of that this very day. For we pray in Christ's name for his glory. Amen.